But I just found out this week that Chucky, one of the characters from Rugrats, the drawing is based on Mark. That's not a compliment. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the podcast where musicians dig deep into the records from the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We're going to give you the history. We're going to give you the musical context. We're going to play clips from a handful of songs and we're going to go deep on talking about those songs. And in the end, what we're going to do is vote on whether or not this record is actually something you need to hear before you die. I want to thank you all right off the bat for listening to us. I'm Rob. I've been playing music since I was a wee lad, and I've been complaining even longer. Now, this week is a very special week. We've been listening to the debut record by a group that David Bowie once called the Band of the Future. And on the other side of the fence, Village Voice critic Robert Christgau called them Meatloaf for people too sophisticated to like meatloaf. The over-under I had on when that quote would be referenced was definitely <laughs> like the 10-minute mark, so you, you smashed expectations. <laughs> too good. Too good not to not bring up meatloaf right away. We're talking, of course, about Devo and the album entitled... Actually, the album title is, is a bit of a dialogue, which I don't think any other album title out there is. Question, are we not men? Answer, we are Devo. Before we get to any of the blabbering, let's just jump right in on the opening track from Are We Not Men, We Are Devo called Uncontrollable Purge. Okay, and I'm pleased to announce we've got two special guests today from a like-minded music podcast called Here 30. We're going to introduce them properly in a moment, and we want you to go listen to their podcast. And in fact, Tom and I guessed it on their podcast that's available to you right now. But first, I want to throw it around the room, and I'd like to get everyone's tweet-length review. What's your week been like with Devo? I'm going to throw it first to Tom. All right. Thank you, everybody. This is Tom. I had a hard time putting together a tweet-length review. This is, this is what I came up with here. Herky-jerky rhythms, early synth explorations, weird vocal affectations, Devo are daring you to like their music. If I am being fair, though, this unbearable hipster bullshit was actually pretty easy to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Might be a contentious episode. I don't know. We're going to throw it Two, one, Alan. You know, I used to think Devo was a bunch of weirdos who made mildly catchy nerd rock, devoid of any sort of human emotion. I still think that, but I used to think it too. <laughs> to quote uh, Mitch Hedberg. Invoking a classic, yes. Okay. I'm excited for this conversation, y'all. And now to throw it to one of our esteemed guests, Joe from Here 30. Give us your tweet length review. Are we not men? 
These salt-of-the-earth spud boys from Akron did pretty good work for themselves, in spite of the hacky producers they had for this album. Quirky guitars, jarring bass, and somehow less sold than Mick Jagger at the end of Beggar's Banquet. But that's the point! They made a record that everyone's wife in America hates, and I love that about it. Forever a spud boy. <laughs> Let's not gloss over the fact that you called Eno a hack, by the way. But we're going to get into it. And Bowie. We're gonna and get, Jagger. This is good. We're going to get into it. Okay. Next, we'd like to throw it to Josh, our other guest from the Here 30 podcast. Josh, give it to us. When we first arranged this with uh, with the other hosts here, um, uh, Joe had given me the warning uh, to not not come off as a Devo fanboy, but I'm my own man, and damn, I'm a Devo fanboy. So my review is, don't blink. Devo has one record that I would consider punk, and it's only 34 minutes long. 34 minutes of gold. All killer, no filler. All killer, no filler. Okay. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's a bold statement. Yeah, yeah. Little filler. Let me just round it out. With I'm Rob, and this is my tweet-length review of Are We Not Men, We're Devo. I wrote, is this music for robots or music designed to fight the robots? I'm not sure, but if you like your entertainment disconcerting and off-kilter, Devo is the band for you, fella. Before we get into the broader discussion and get into Devo's history, because it is a really interesting history, they're a high-concept band, we're going to get into it in addition to getting into the, the individual songs. But I wanted to spend just a little bit of time talking to our guests. Joe, from Here 30, you're here guesting on our podcast. Like I mentioned, Tom and I have guested on, I just guested on your podcast talking about T-Swift. We encourage listeners to go over there after this episode and, and listen to that if you want to hear us presumably get ourselves canceled by by decrying Taylor Swift in some way. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But Joe, tell us a little bit about the podcast here at 30. Why should people go over and, and listen to you guys? So I basically want to say that if you like 1001 album complaints, I think you're going to like our podcast too. We're very similar. We're, we're a friends talking music podcast, but we do it a little less eloquently than you guys. We're we're a little louder. We're a little bit more complainy. We're a little bit, a little more vulgar, I would say. But uh, we touched on a lot of the same points. We we have a really good time on there. The main point of our podcast is to not go through a list necessarily, but it's to hopefully inspire people to branch out of their comfort zone and listen to new music. That's the entire point of the podcast. So we've taken out all the albums that we've heard too much. And then we listen to those. So that way we can branch our horizons and hopefully help people branch their horizons out as well. And we use it as a learning opportunity for us. So if we like it, we hope that other people do too. I got one point of contention here. I will put my fuck count up against anybody's fuck count in the business. I, you say <laughs> I was going to say, no one, on. it, we found the one podcast that's more complaining than us. Like after a long, arduous search. <laughs> well, let me say we have a... TLC episode coming out shortly, and I'm thinking about putting an explicit tag on there. <laughs> All righty. <laughs> the red light special. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. I like that about your guys' podcast, too. That's what jumped out to me, the, the kind of newness, the freshness of y'all approaching these albums. And I'm definitely excited to hear your takes on, on Devo. So excited to, to be diving in here. And I'll just say right off the bat, this wasn't exactly new to me. I had heard some of these songs before, but this is the first time this week that I had gone all the way through this album. So I'm going to give a little background. I encourage you to interrupt me where you have thoughts, tell kind of the story of Devo. But let's start with the basics. This is Devo's debut album. It came out August 28th, 1978. Just for a little musical context, the number one song on the Billboard charts that week was Frankie Valli's Grease. 
That's right. We're in full disco era here. There's there's nary a art rock band to be found. I, I found another favorite of ours that was a, a number one that year, which is the that song by Exile. I wanna kiss you all over. Oh, yeah. that's, that's a that's a Robin Tom jam if I ever heard one. <laughs> I do yeah. love that song. Classic. <laughs> Classic. So this did, it didn't do quite as well in the U.S. Devo are from the U.S. They're from Ohio, as I believe was referenced in one of the tweets. But it didn't end up doing all that well in the U.S. It peaked at number 78 when it was out. It did eventually go gold, but not until 2001. Whereas over in the U.K., it peaked at number 12. It was it was a little better received, hit number 12 on the charts, and went silver, which... I now understand from the research is 200,000 records sold in the same year it actually came out. So it did, did better in the UK for sure, better received. I don't think I knew that silver was a category. You know, even on Wikipedia, they gave it quotes, so I'm not sure if it's a real thing. <laughs> They're apparently pretty big in Japan. For some reason, they just really hit a vein of weird uh, futurism. I think runs through a lot of Japanese pop culture, yeah. There's a whole bunch of Japanese bands that basically mimic Devo, Devo's thing verbatim they'll wear the energy suit like there's a band called the poly six that basically is a double the speed devo cover band it's insane oh, wow it's funny funny you mentioned that because tom and i have opened for poly six that's no, what I, exactly really? what i was gonna bring up <laughs> what? yeah yes they put on a we great show the, too mm-hmm. they put on an awesome show it was like a sold out show at a at a club called bottom of the hill in san francisco it was probably our most exciting full show ever so we were very lucky to be there we had a great time yeah they were awesome Let's talk a little bit about the origins of this band. First of all, let's talk about who is on this record. The band consists of a guy called Mark Mothersbaugh. He's vocals, keys, and some guitar. A guy called Gerald Casale, also goes by Jerry. He's vocals, bass, and keyboards. Those are kind of the the core, if you will, of Devo. Then, individually, their two brothers are also in the band. Bob Mothersbaugh plays lead guitar. If anything on this record could count as lead guitar, it's unclear. (laughs) And uh, a guy called Bob Casale, that's that's Jerry's brother, plays rhythm guitar. And the drummer is a guy called Alan Myers, the one non-brother in the band. But really, the origin, and this I learned just this week, so it's, it is kind of interesting. The origin of this band goes back to Kent State in Ohio. These guys are from the Akron area of Ohio. And they were, Mark and Jerry, were attending Kent State for college in 1970 as art students. Wait, they were art students? No way that these guys were <laughs> art students. you got to be kidding me. I thought they would be political scientists or something like that. <laughs> or economists. Yeah, or I thought they were in, like, you know, business administration. Yeah, definitely finance bros, part of the Greek system, I'm sure. So <laughs> they, were, they were art students, and Gerald Casale was at the protest. So what happened in Kent State in 1970? There were a series of student protests, of escalating peaceful student protests, part of the... Students for a Democratic Society on campus protesting against the Vietnam War. You know, one of these things where 2,000 students go out and gather on the green and there's speakers and things like that. And it had kind of been ramping up as the Vietnam War was ramping up and the sentiment on a lot of American colleges was anti-war, as, as you can probably understand. And the governor of Ohio was, called them anti-American, the, the whole idea of these protests. And long story short is they brought the National Guard in over the course of a weekend all building up to this one large protest on a Monday, on a school day. 2,000 students, the National Guard are there. They try to push the student. They try to get them to disperse. They won't disperse. They use tear gas. 
And at some point, I guess students start, you know, throwing some rocks at these guys in riot gear and the National Guard opens fire. Four students are killed. It's a national tragedy. It's a very, very, very famous Pulitzer Prize winning photograph. Anyway, Jerry Casale was there and knew a couple of the kids that were killed in this. And it completely transformed his life, he later said. He, it's the day he stopped being a hippie. I think this sets the tone for a lot of what was going on with Diva, like what was going on in the air, the political atmosphere of, of why they formed this band. Just one more little tidbit I found out this week, though. He's, you know who was also at this protest? Neil Young? Chrissy, Chrissy Hind of The Pretenders. Ah, okay. She also went to Kent State. I, I had to say, I saw, the, I saw an interview with, uh, with Jerry where he was talking about how he was making just sort of normal art and music before then, and then that made him want to go political. And I was like, this is the direction that you went in with your political music? Because I can't really read a whole lot of like war protest shit going on with the music that you have. It's more just like a protest, the protesting society or like the concept of humanity. That's exactly what it is. Protesting society. Yep. Yeah. Th- so let's talk about the concept. So DEVO stands for de-evolution. The idea that society is in the process of regressing. And this is kind of where that, that idea was born in Jerry Casale's head. He teams up with Mark Mothersbaugh. Like you said, they had already been kind of playing in bands, in more standard bands, but they decided to do something way stranger. I read and, that Mark Mothersbaugh was in a uh, classic rock cover band at the time, <laughs> which I find to be absolutely hilarious that like the, you know, the concept of him up there just, again, doing a straight ahead version of I Can't Get No Satisfaction, which <laughs> seems pretty unfitting. Or he's up there singing like Blinded by the Light or something. Just <laughs> Yeah. Well, I also heard a story that in the early days, they would just lie to get themselves booked at campus bars or other bars and just say they were going to play Bad Company covers. And then they'd get up there for three songs or something and be playing Devo music. And they would, they were very excited that they actually got paid to leave a gig one time. <laughs> that was a huge win for them. So the concept, let's talk about the concept. The concept was kind of, yeah, it was about the de-evolution of man, about society regressing over time as, as opposed to progressing. But I think really it was about the high and the low. The, combine, the combination of the lofty ideas of art history with the crassest, most inane ideas of pop culture. This is kind of coming directly from a quote from Jerry. And keep in mind that at this time, performance art was not really even a term. It was in its very early infancy. So when they started this, I don't even think they considered themselves... I'm not sure they even said directly they were a band. They were more of a collective, an art collective. They were an art project. You know, they wanted to be a full audiovisual experience. They wanted to do movies. They wanted to do music. They wanted to push their message on people. It wasn't just about the music. Absolutely. And in fact, it took. they spent a lot of time making videos and doing other visual things and just going to other art exhibits and kind of commenting on them, disrupting them. They had a guy in some kind of animal costume who would just go greased up and wrestle and comment on the art of these other students. And the idea of de-evolution, which this was an idea in their head about society regressing, about humans regressing, as opposed to evolving, which they nicknamed Art Devo. The human isn't at the center of the universe. It's the end of the capitalistic American dream, the end of consumerism, the foolishness of thinking you know what you're doing in any capacity. And a lot of the idea of this collective and what became this band 
was about being really smart, but appearing really stupid. So this is definitely a very high concept band, even compared to other strange concept bands out there. And I just think you have to have that context to even approach this weird as fuck music. You know, I got to tell you, their their concept sounds an awful lot like, and the, the name is escaping me, but he's like, I was no longer a hippie. But it's very much in that sort of like hippie parade of the absurdity. Like we kind of go go around town together and, you know, mock the square. Like merry of, pranksters. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. It seems very much in line with that, but it's just a much more I don't know, futuristic and less earthy version of that. It's a good point. Well, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters would probably have said that they were a reaction to traditional hippieism, too. Uh, and and they were obviously LSD was a factor. I didn't really get a lot of information on how much how many drugs or which drugs Devo was doing, but I assume there were some in there. But I mean, they were hanging out with Bowie in the seventies, so cocaine and bell peppers uh, and milk, not, right? <laughs> not I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if Bowie actually ever made it into the studio when they were there or not. It's a little unclear. They said he came in on the weekends. He came mm. in on the weekends. He was filming some movie or something. All right, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to Bowie. But a little more to get up to the recording sessions. They spent three years just in their rehearsal space, writing songs, recording on a four-track, making pamphlets, making short films before they ever decided to perform. So this is the... We said it kind of started in 1970, they had put together songs and a demo, I think, by about 1973. They spent around two grand to make a record on their own. They released it under their own label. It contained two of the songs that are on this record, Mongoloid and Jocko Homo. And, you know, they sent it to a bunch of people. But they really had this pretty early innovative idea to create a Devo universe. They they sent not only this, this 45 record, but they also sent a tape this, this short film that they had made about de-evolution and about their concept, and they had this mythos, just a lot of different characters and uh, backstories and things like that. And they sent this out to a bunch of people, and no huge surprise, perhaps, almost nothing happened as a result. They did send a tape to Bowie, or a record. They didn't get a response, but it kind of got in Bowie's inner circle's radar, so I think that was the start of getting into sort of Bowie's head a little bit. And so eventually, they started playing shows. They realized that playing shows was the only way they were going to really get their name out there. They started playing shows. They started having really weird live events. They were they're a real spectacle. I don't know if anyone on this on this call has actually seen them live and can comment, but they're supposedly very into the theatricality. Well, please please pipe up. What's a Devo show like? Well, a Devo show now is much different than a Devo show in the 70s. Devo show now is just them kind of regurgitating the greatest hits while wearing their energy domes and the energy suits. But, like, Devo shows in the 70s were a lot weirder and a lot more antagonistic. They were they were trying to piss people off at the time. Yeah, we ended up, uh, we saw them uh, two nights in a row in Chicago. They did uh, Are We Not Men front to back the first night and then uh, Freedom of Choice the second night. So those are pretty much my two favorite Devo records. So yeah, it was it was awesome. It was, it was a great time. And we saw them one other time before that too in Chicago. It was more of just a general set. When you say that they were antagonistic, like what do you mean by that? In like a punk rock sense? Their music doesn't get that across enough for you, Alan? <laughs> more about like challenging people's ideas. Antagonistic in like the, the modern classical music sense where they're they're trying to be weird. They're trying to piss people off they're trying they're getting in people's faces and making them sing these songs that they don't know 
being really weird in the 70s when that wasn't as acceptable as it is nowadays. Like like audience interaction and stuff like that. Dare we say, were they trying to freak out the squares? <laughs> yes, they definitely were trying to freak out the squares, which is a shorthand insult around here. But I have to say, this band definitely freaked out some squares. So, I mean, I feel a little freaked out, frankly. But let me, I have a quote of Mark Mothersbaugh's early idea of what a perfect Devo concert would be. He said it would be outdoors, and the crowd does calisthenics to the music, coordinated calisthenics instead of dancing. And then Devo plays a, the brown note, the subsonic frequency that makes everyone poop their pants. I just did. Then another sound, a high-frequency sound that makes them orgasm. I think he was reading some Life magazine article about the government testing sonic crowd disbursement weapons. And then he's like, yeah, and then we hose them all down at the end. We could sell Devo branded diapers. It's great. Yeah, I don't see the problem. How are these guys not more popular? I don't get it. <laughs> so as was alluded to, they kind of got lumped in with the punk movement. But I think a lot of the other punks didn't really like them. I mean, punk became a catch-all term for anything that wasn't mainstream, I think, at the time. And as Josh alluded to, the record is clocks in under 35 minutes. So that's definitely punk. But... I got the sense from listening to interviews with these guys that they didn't really feel, they certainly weren't embraced by the punk community. They were just too strange. But in their minds... Well, you know what's not punk at all? What's not punk at all is they're actually decent at their instruments. Yeah. Which I feel like the hallmark of the punk movement back in the day is you had to suck. It was a matter of pride. Like, you had to be New York Dolls level of shit at your instrument <laughs> to actually, like, you know, be considered a punk. And these guys are pretty competent. There's television, who was also punk, quotation marks, and they were awesome at their music uh, instruments. Hell yeah. And then you had a band like the Meat Puppets, who intentionally didn't practice before their first record was released. They they, they wanted to keep it real and not... Of course, they, they turned it around with Meat Puppets, too, and uh, Up on the Sun and whatnot. But yeah, that, that first record, they, they were keeping it raw. They were keeping it punk. Well, just to comment on Devo's mindset on it, they in their mind, they were kind of, quote-unquote, the real punks. Because to hear Jerry Casale talk about it, he said, you know, other punks, the punk movement, Sex Pistols and Ramones and things of that nature, he said, in his mind, he said that was mostly backward looking to the 50s and 60s, both in terms of the style of dress, the musical style, the, the type of anger in, in his mind. Whereas he thought of Devo as being truly forward looking and truly what future music might look like. So they play shows. They get a little buzz going. One night, Bowie introduces them on stage in New York City. And that's when he says the line about them being the band of the future. And he also announces that he's going to produce their record in Tokyo. Doesn't happen, but he ends up handing them off to Brian Eno. And without a record contract, they fly to Germany to cut this record. With Brian Eno as the producer, with David Bowie coming in on weekends because he was filming some movie and couldn't do it, to Cologne, Germany to help... And David Bowie is also credited with with mixing this record. Eno paying out of pocket as well. Correct. Yeah, yeah. he flew him out there. He put him up because they didn't have a record contract. But he felt sure they were going to get one, and they did, to get this released. They spent about six weeks on this. It was relatively low budget because there wasn't a record label behind it. It's mostly played live. Apparently, Eno actually plays on a lot of the tracks, but they didn't keep any of his tracks except maybe some vocals occasionally. Yeah, didn't they say that they were... 
resistant to Eno said that they were resistant to experimentation on this album, yeah. which I actually thought is kind of an interesting comment to make. The, this is the finished product, and he's like, I wanted to go weirder, and they were just totally not into it. Like, it's pretty it's, fucking it's funny if they already. had to draw the line in the sand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> These are the ideas. You would think. Yeah, you would think it would be a perfect match of weirdos, right? Because apparently at some point, Bowie was interested in producing this. Iggy Pop was interested in producing this. Robert Fripp of King Crimson was interested in producing this. Really? I just throw in, Bowie was interested in producing this. And then Iggy Pop was just like, well, I just every I just do whatever Bowie does. So I'm also interested in producing <laughs> this as well. In between shots of, of black tar heroin. It's like, maybe I can get a couple tracks in. Okay. Yeah, as you mentioned, the recording sessions were a source of frustration. It, apparently, Eno and Devo, Eno and Devo, new in the mornings for Cincinnati. Uh, Eno and Devo did not hit it off, and like you said, they, you know, they they just clashed on a lot of the ideas. I I couldn't get a lot of sense of exactly where they clashed, but yeah, they didn't like Eno's tracking, and that's why Bowie actually ended up being brought in to finish it off. I think Eno had mixed it, and they weren't satisfied. They were mad at Eno, whatever. And then Bowie comes in to finish it off and remix the album. I say we go back into the tunes and start actually talking about this perilously strange music. We already played a little snippet of Uncontrollable Urge, the first song on the record. But let's dive into a different spot on there and get some thoughts. throw it first to Tom. Tell me a little bit about just about general impressions of the album, and we can also talk about this first track. This first track is really good. I I like this one a lot. I think it's a great use of like tension and release on this song. It's not like Pink Floyd style, but it's, you know, it's got some some sort of build to it in my head the whole time. I'm like, if they're ever going to make like a kick-ass three or something like that, this is going to be in a fight scene in that movie or something like that. It's like perfectly made for that. But I've experienced this myself. I'm sure we've all experienced this. It's a huge bummer when you're like in the middle of recording a song and you're all super just ensconced in your quarters and you're about two thirds of the way through the song. And then somebody, uh, you know, hits the door chime on the Starship <laughs> Enterprise and it just get, stays on the track in the middle. What the fuck is that sound? Why is that there? And why does it work? I don't understand it. <laughs> Wait, as if nine 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 wasn't bad enough. <laughs> I was gonna yeah check those lyrics. Is that that wasn't on the Spotify lyric scroll on Genius.com? There's a line that just says nine 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 nine. And I've got a theory that this song is actually kind of about Hitler. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. Well. Yeah. Let's explore that. There's not a lot of words, so you can kind of read a bunch into what these you know into, into what the words are actually saying. But whenever you use the word purge. And nine in the same song, it kind of 
It kind of mm. evokes towards a 1940s Germany kind of thing. And that's nine, N-E-I-N. Just straight to Nazism with you. I, 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 my over-under on when we were going to get to Nazism was at least 20 minutes. Right. So I think we... It's a Michigan thing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought this song is pretty cool, actually. Like, super catchy, still stays in my head. I think it's sort of a quintessential, you know, we always talk about the mission statement, the sort of, like, debut album, track one, here's our introduction to the world. Like, it's, it's not as weird as it gets for them but i do think it's it's a solid you know it's 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 a walk off homer as they say or lead off homer yeah one of the things i was struck by is that right off the bat right it's the first song on the first album first side right it's the com- coming out of the, off the blocks right off the bat they subvert expectation and jump the beat to throw you off that defines the kind of band they are i think they don't want you to feel safe it sets a tone it sets a tone and you know, I thought this song, it's not really even close to my favorite song on the record. I understand why it's probably been picked up and used in movie soundtracks and things like that. And yeah, you know, it's catchy and everything. But it's a good example to me of this high and low concept for them. Because it kind of sounds like any high school band just banging away in the basement. A-G-E. A-G-E. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, there's something strange and unsettling about it that makes you know there's something else going on. There's more to it than that. And so it's it's a subtle thing. They're, they're playing with it. So I think that was this was a good mix of that. Because it could be construed as a pretty straightforward punk song or even pop song. And yet there's this this deeper weirdness to it. Well, I think that's what's cool about like good punk is that it's super basic conceptually. Like there's not a ton of music theory, but the way it's sort of packaged together to take like really simple chords and simple progressions, but to like adjust it slightly so that you can't really get your feet set on it. I, you know, I think that's, that's pretty good song craft. Yeah. I get kind of like almost early Elvis Costello vibes out of this, which I know that he does more, a lot more chord changes in his songs generally, but just that sort of almost like sneering weirdness that, uh, that I dug. It's like, it's it's punk adjacent, but it's not punk. It's not trying to get all up in your face and shit. It's just sort of like a raucous good time. Something about that hiccupy vocal. That's kind of a throwback to almost buddy Holly you know, which Elvis Costello also had. I, I hear a little bit of that that in Mark Mother's Ball. Although I feel like a lot of the vocals on this record just sound like spontaneous outbursts. <laughs> like Tourette's. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Josh, you're the big Devo fan here. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so a little bit of background uh, on my life and my exposure to Devo. My parents had quite the record collection growing up, and my dad hit a phase in the early 80s that where he was all about new waves. So he, I mean, Blondie, B-52s, Talking Heads, lots of Devo records, all of that around. And I, I guess one of the things that he would often do is, uh, you know, mom's going out and shopping, he would put on, he put on Devo, Talking Heads, have little new wave dance parties with me and my older brother. Um, so I, I've uh, I've been indoctrinated into the Church of De-Evolution for a long time now. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but and, and that that's definitely a part of it for me. I mean, I remember hearing this record when I was a kid. I heard this record a lot when I was a kid. And um, I, I remember looking at my dad's LPs and seeing like the cover of Freedom of Choice and you got these guys that are all lined up and they've got their energy domes on and they're all standing there like they're soldiers. And, you know, when you're a kid, you, you know, you, you think 
think like, wow, like, you know, are these guys like superheroes or something? Is, is that why they <laughs> rock so hard? Is it the energy dome that makes them rock so hard? Is it like Buckethead's mask? Of course, I didn't know about Buckethead, Ben. That, that was uh, preaching when I finally picked up on Buckethead. And it kind of makes sense that I glommed onto him too. Anyway, um, to, to actually get to this song, I, I find this one to be um, very unique on the record in that, you know, there are there's really no talk of like de-evolution or anti-commercialism, anything like that. It's it's a very accessible song lyrically. He's got an urge, an urge that is unnamed. I mean, I think everyone can relate to that. And um absolutely love that. I mean, it's just like a super, super tight, awesome punk song about the only problem I have with it is what I like to refer to as the squonks that start at 228. It's almost like, hey, guys, um, this song's not quite weird enough yet. Mark, do you have some weird ass sound that we could play? <laughs> yeah. And oh, oh, that's perfect. Yeah, let's go with those squonks. Yeah. So we haven't mentioned yet, right, that they were early adopters of synthesizers and even modding their synthesizers and their guitar amps in other ways in a process called circuit bending. Or I think Mark's younger brother specifically, who was, he had a, a third brother or a second brother who was the first original drummer in Devo, but he was particularly into modding electronics and trying to just make the weirdest possible sounds come out of uh, common instruments. And so that's, that's definitely a, a hallmark of their sound. Just like, how can we throw more weird noise at it? He originally played a homemade electronic drum kit, yes. right? Like, that's that's intense. They called it one of the first ever electronic drum kits. You know, if you're talking a drum kit in the early 70s that's electronic, that's pretty ahead of the curve. Yeah, there was a whole interview with Mark Mothersbaugh from, like, Computer Magazine or something like that. It's like an hour and a half long interview, but it's not necessarily talking about the music. It's talking about the process of making the sounds that they made and they do have some really cool and interesting sounds. One of my general notes is that you listen to this from a modern perspective and you're like, yeah, all of these sounds are pretty ho-hum. It's super easy to make any of these sounds. Like I could get an app on my phone that could make 95% of the sounds that you make on this album. But at the time they had to do a lot to get that. There wasn't a button or a preset or anything that they could just make happen. They were really, they said into the circuitry to actually make this shit happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. You take a lot of these sounds and effects for granted now, but even years later, maybe even almost 10 years later, when they recorded probably their biggest hit, Whip It, I heard Jerry Casale talking about how they got the whip sound. Bringing a bullwhip into the studio and trying to get a good sound off it was not a possibility, so they had to create it backwards. Challenge they, accepted. Yeah, exactly. So it took some real sound engineering. <laughs> well, Rob, we're, go we're going to the studio on Saturday. I have a bullwhip. I will bring it. We'll see if we can get a whip sound. <laughs> no, you got to do it diva style, dude. They used like white noise with a reverse reverb or some kind of reverse echo situation. So it has this feeling of being like sucked out and snapping anyway. But your, your point is well felt, which is now some of this stuff feels old hat, but this was so monumental at the time. And you know, one of the videos I watched this week was their appearance on SNL, I believe in 1978, the year this came out and they look super, still supremely strange. They have these really herky jerky kind of robot, movements where from I had watched some of their music videos before of course and I thought they were doing a filmic trick where they were fast forwarding or cutting weirdly to make themselves look more herky-jerky but no watching the SNL performance they're doing that live and it is and you saw some of the I saw some of the YouTube comments and they were just like you cannot understand the context now but for me this was like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan this was so 
weird to see this on live national television like it blew my mind you know if everything you're getting is like once twice three times a lady every time you turn on the fucking radio (laughs) you're like it's gonna blow your mind just to put that in perspective i have seen devo and lionel richie in concert (laughs) (laughs) together (laughs) same show devo was on the left side lionel was on the right side it was great let's move it along to their cover of the Rolling Stones, Satisf- I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Take a popular song and just rip the soul out of it. Turn it into a machine. Like, you know, the machine that the Stones were part of at the time. You know, it it's just a totally unique take on such a rock and roll standard. I freaking love this song. Although, I will say, hypocritically, Devo is also going to get sucked into that machine, too, a little bit later. Just in a lesser extent. Sure. Well, they did, I believe, re-record a parody version of Whip It for a Swiffer commercial in the 2000s. <laughs> no. Man, t- times is tough, man. You gotta, you gotta make a living. <laughs> they drove a dump truck of money up to my house! I'm not made of stone! <laughs> Listen, when a problem comes along. <laughs> no, this is still hip, honestly. Like, this is still a hip interpretation of this song. I listened to it. Part of it is the fact that, and I guess even in 1978... I can't get no satisfaction was 14 years removed or maybe less, a little less than that. 12 years removed from being released. It was still in the popular culture, but here yeah. we are in, you know, 2023 and I can't get no satisfaction is still in the popular culture. And so it still feels like a send up. Even if you just hear it for the first time now, it still feels like a send up of popular music, even though that music hasn't been popular for a really long time. So I, I agree. This is an absolute success to me on on kind of every level. I agree with everything that's already been said. We've given a lot of crap to artists on this podcast doing co- doing covers unnecessarily, not adding to them, not changing them, taking something that was already a definitive version and just rehashing it in a boring way. This is not that. This is a full on deconstruction of an extremely popular song. I freaking love the drum beat here, and this is the first time I'm going to call out the drummer. Alan, the human metronome. I think he's the best part of this band. They're, they're, they, you can tell they're all competent, but to me, the drums are one of the most interesting things going on, and they play with time signatures and stuff like that. But the drum beat here is really cool. Just the fact that they were able to totally, and I think I think Marty was talking about it on a recent episode, to do a cover properly, you have to, especially one that you yourself have heard maybe thousands of times, these really popular songs, you have to c- completely forget all that. And in order to reinterpret it and then make it your own. And they absolutely do this so, so well. One other observation about why this is a complete reinvention or what's cool about it is the song, in my mind, the Rolling Stones song, is synonymous with a guitar riff, right? Supposedly Keith Richards dreamed the guitar riff and got up in the middle of the night and recorded it. But they don't even reference the guitar riff until the song is in its coda. And then the synth kind of does the back half 
of the guitar riff at about 2.0, And they almost like change the rhythm in the groove when they do the guitar riff. It, like it's almost unrecognizable unless you're listening for it. Exactly. I totally agree. I also liked one of the things that just made my ears perk up, just to call out another timestamp, was the skip vocal thing where you think the record's skipping, but it's just Mark. The baby, 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 baby. Uh, so I am convinced that thinking about the ergonomics of actually recording a song, I'm convinced that they lost track of time in that, in that verse and they extended it too far. And then when they went to go do the vocals, they were like, oh, shit, we have to we have to stretch this a little bit. Like, how are we going to do it? And they did it. And it's the coolest part of the song. I don't know if that's true or not, but that is officially my headcanon moving forward. And you kind of asked about how they are, they were antagonistic early on. And this is an example. When they played this live, they said there was time, there were shows where uh, Mark said baby 35, 40 times just to kind of keep it going, you know, like (laughs) that's antagonistic. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really sound that fun to me. So maybe let me, let me just give you the darker side of it. I think a lot of this is really successful and intellectually interesting, And actually, I really enjoyed listening to this song and maybe a couple other ones. But a lot of this is so angular, is so disconcerting that I can't exactly call it fun to listen to. And that concert experience that you just mentioned doesn't really sound that great either. I've listened to Fish jam on a Ween song for 45 minutes, and I think I'm just, you know, past that part of my life. Weren't you just pitching going to see Fish? Like uh, buying tickets, baby. <laughs> I'm not. I'm. Not, I'll be out of town. <laughs> Wait, you were at Big Cypress. You saw them play for like nine hours overnight. <laughs> I re- I remember. And when I say I remember, I mean I do not remember. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, it 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 alternatively seemed like I was not there at all, and that it lasted an entire lifetime. And maybe some of the substances coursing through my veins had something to do with that. But uh, let's keep it rolling along to the next song on our focus list: Jocko Homo. This is kind of their signature song, right? It contains the chant that is the album title. It's a theme song, if you will. It's sort of a demented carnival ride through a mad scientist's brain. It's also robot fuck music. That's my... (laughs) (laughs) This song was a little too weird for me. Like, I'm just going to... I'm just going to say it like I felt you talk about like unsettling like I felt very unsettled during this song I couldn't get my arms around it to be honest I did think it was funny I saw a 
somebody praising, you know, in some online review, someone was praising this for being so out there with its like seven, eight time signature. That, I mean, that's not, yeah, it's not four, four, you know, not breaking like huge ground here with this being in seven. But again, the only bands that were doing seven, eight in the seventies were yes. You know, so for a quote punk band to do that, it's, it's a little bit different take. That's fair. That's a fair point. It's a different take, but it is, it's unsettling. You cannot be like, I'm just feeling this seven. Oh, yeah, it's so natural. They I'm want it to it. be yeah. unsettling. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. Oh, mission accomplished. Yeah. But hold on. Let's cite the other, one of the most popular hits of the 70s, Money by Pink Floyd, is also in seven, but it's a groovy seven. <laughs> yeah. This is a dick slap in the face seven. <laughs> this gets you very thrown off by everything that happens. And it's not just the time signature, it's the emphasis points and how they should, you know, the, which where you emphasize in that bar of seven across the instruments it just never really stays still so you have this kind of tension you, you feel tense listening to it so I, I can't really say i like the song in the sense that listening to it does not bring me enjoyment <laughs> that's where i'm at with the song i do appreciate the song and it definitely sounds like nothing else on earth and so i can appreciate that but fish fans do you feel the release when they go back into 4-4 and they start the chant section I, I did like that part and not because of the fish element, although that's in, in the DNA. But yeah, I did think they, you know, they gave you a taste of the weirdness and then sort of settled in. And I appreciated that, too. But if their version of settling in, if that's their version of settling in is these strange cultic chants <laughs> that change in pitch every time through. Like they don't they never really give you a chance to settle. Right. And that's their goal. Like we're grading on a curve here. So I I have to point out, and uh, if anybody had the over under on when Tom was going to talk about Weird Al on this podcast, this is the time. I was officially <laughs> I heard this song for the first time on the Polka on Forty Five on Weird Al Yankovic's in three D, and it's like the opening song for it, and he does a pretty great version of it. He actually changes that into eight to make it sound a little bit more pleasant but it's great and if no if you guys haven't heard that that polka on 45 introduced me to like 15 of these classic bangers that i had never heard as a child hot blooded is in there we got my generations in there yeah it's it's fantastic so again weird al even though he was coming in what like six or seven years later still on the cutting edge of music yeah i'm gonna second that 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 polka in particular is brilliant and the fact that he chose devo i I don't think jocko homo was a particularly large single so i I think he might have been a bit of a fan could be wrong yeah that that makes sense i could see that he is a big fan look at dare to be stupid that song is a true pastiche on a devo song like they pull out some exact noises from devo in the 80s particularly oh no it's devo record yeah fair enough i think in my mind again not being super familiar with devo other than whip it to me this is the song that if you just were listening to this album in the background which is near impossible frankly (laughs) but this song even amidst the strangeness this would stand out to me and two i do think of this as their theme song and the song most associated with them after whip it is it because they say their name like 34 times in this song that would help and now is the part of the podcast where we reference our old band that also did that Tom that opened for poly six and we took listen we weren't the big Devo fans in the band our our compadre was but we did take a lot of cues from this band in terms of theatricality the kind of the mythos the the calisthenics on stage things like that and so I I appreciate I appreciate all that, and I'm still with that. I think that this has to hold the record for the most times 
a band has said their name in the course of one song. Uh, you've never heard a hip hop song? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, they all have like 17 different names that they refer to themselves as. I mean, it it's pretty relentless at the end of the song. And but it works. It works really well. I I do got to say not pleasant, but if you are talking about like did they accomplish what they were trying to get across? Fuck yeah, I think they accomplished what they were trying to get across. Have you guys watched the music video for this song? Yes. yes, the original version of it that's like ten percent slower and just is more disconcerting somehow. That's that's the short film that they were distributing in those early days and showing and having showings of in Akron, Ohio, and stuff to try to get to get heat. In a way, that was like the original art project, is my understanding. Now, now, Joe, um, help me out with this. I, I think we had covered this before. The, the the dance he's doing in the Jocko Homo video that is actually Jerry Casale's poot. Or, or is that not the poot? I I have heard different things. Like, because I saw some quotes with Jerry saying they had a guy uh, that Rob referenced earlier, poot man, poot man, that used to go into art exhibits and squat down low, wiggle and stick his ass in the air and kind of push on it. Then, then... He was twerking? Kind of. <laughs> As an early twerk. <laughs> yeah. Like, the whole idea was to almost be imitating an ape. Like, to kind of show de-evolution at its finest. You know, it's something that a normal, you know, sane art student from Ohio would do. You know, I promise. I promise not all us Midwesterners are crazy. Well, art students have a certain thing about them that I think has been consistent. And, in fact, that old member of our band that we just referenced that's a huge Devo fan went to art school in Baltimore. And one of his big conceptual art projects was a bare-knuckled boxing match at night under an overpass in a ring of you know, cars with headlights on. In downtown Baltimore. I'm in. Which adds a whole nother layer to it. That was an art project for him. So, yeah, I think relatively early and often, I got it into my head what conceptual art was, not that it is anything particular. So I do, I want to stress that I have appreciation for what Devo are doing, but I will not be putting Jocko Homo on a mix anytime soon. Me and Josh used to go into bathrooms back in the day and yell, are we not men? Then we are Devo. <laughs> yeah, we would do the call and response thing. That's amazing. I do have one uh, another uh, story from my childhood regarding Devo. Since uh, yeah, we, uh, my brother and I were exposed to it. My brother is the other host of the Here Thirty podcast, by the way. My my mom used to have these like plastic Tupperware bowls, you know. And so whenever she was serving soup or anything, we'd get to the table, we'd have these plastic Tupperware bowls on the table, and. <laughs> they kind of looked like, you know, mini energy domes. So I, I distinctly remember me being about seven or eight and my brother being about nine or ten. And we would come to the kitchen table and we would turn the Tupperware soup bowl and put it on our head and basically start singing Jocko Homo. We, we'd go to mom and be like, we are Devo. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I'm sure she absolutely loved that. She, she she wasn't a huge Devo fan. She was more of a Rod Stewart, Michael Bolton type. Mm. So so yeah, she she probably loved the fact that, yeah, dad, dad had gone off and made, made us uh, devotees and then went off to work and she had to deal with the aftermath. <laughs> oh, devotees. I never heard that one before. That's good. Joe, I think you mentioned the, in your tweet length review that uh, this is the music that wives everywhere hated. Yes. I got to tell you. That story checks out. I was playing this one in the house, and my kids were kind of into it. My wife was like, are we really listening to this again? <laughs> my wife hates three bands. She hates Devo, she hates Ween, and she hates Fish. <laughs> I like two of those three bands. Yeah, all valid. 
Let's talk about the hats for a second, because I noticed Jerry Casale seemed very annoyed that people have come to call them the flower pot hats. He's like, you have never seen a flower pot that looks like that in your life. <laughs> he was very adamant about it. It came from a ceiling fixture from an art deco living room he once saw that he pulled off the ceiling and molded and created himself. So definitely a look, definitely iconic. We got to take that a step farther. Hold on before you before you get away from the energy domes. He says it's inspired by the uh, ziggurat shape that when you keep it floating above your head like it does, it transfers energy in and out of your head at an extreme rate, and it's going to make you smarter. Uh, I could use that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you need you need the little plastic piece that wraps around your head and extra duct tape to keep it all in place. So that way the small shape at the top can focus it. It's a fact. Well, it worked for one of these guys because Mark Mothersbaugh's had a hell of a career post-Devo. He's gone on to score tons of tons of films for Wes Anderson, and he created the Rugrats theme song. One of the tidbits, I, I think we've probably all seen Rugrats at some point. It was a cartoon show. Dude, that's a, that's a great theme song. But I just found out this week that Chucky, one of the characters from Rugrats, the drawing is based on Mark. That's not a compliment. But <laughs> <laughs> the glasses? Okay. Let's keep it rolling to Mongoloid. my favorite track is this the time where we get canceled is this when it happens because i mean you can't write this song these days right mongoloid one chromosome too many like you can't say that probably not i think even though the message the message definitely isn't negative i mean the mongoloid is is the hero of the piece as, as a matter of fact during live shows at least the more recent live shows uh mark mother's ball will actually dress up as a cheerleader and have his pom-poms out wore a hat and he uh, uh. i agree that you can't write this song nowadays but it's not it's not a it's not a bad song it is not a negative song well at some point that was preferred nomenclature i mean we have to just accept yes. that that was true but let's talk about the song i think the bass i love that it starts out with the bass it actually gives you something approaching a groove right at the beginning i think it's funny that you mentioned the bass because i actually wrote a note that said i actually and i i think this is a great song too super catchy I, this is just a pet peeve of mine. I don't know why. I don't like when songs when the bass just starts by itself, but it's only just like the root notes of the chords. <laughs> it feels very to me like mediocre bar band. Like I've just, I feel like I've seen dozens, millions of local bands that just do the like do 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 do, and and it's not about virtuosity. It's it's not what I'm saying. There's something about that sound that just irks me, and I know it's just me, and it makes no sense. Yeah, but the song's great. Give the people what they want, Alan. Come on, I'm just saying, where it's that, at. It might be a, it might be a cue. I got to tell you, this song, it, this song did not do it for me. I thought it was pretty ho hum, and I got tired of the one sort of melodic hook that they had during the verse that they just repeated again and again and again. I needed a counter melody in there to give me something to make that more interesting. I felt that they. They beat that to death a little bit. This is one of the longest songs on the record, too. So it did yeah. might have gone on a little long. 
Yeah. Yeah, it just uh, this one just seemed ho hum. I I felt like minus the lyrical content, this song could have just been written by kind of anybody at the time and it would have sort of passed as a as a song, just a regular old new wave song. And uh yeah, it didn't really do it for me. I'm surprised to hear that this is like multiple people's favorite song on the album. You guys have terrible taste. I want to call out the drummer again for a great job on this tune. I think if you're going to have a high concept band doing really weird shit, you need a really good drummer, and they nailed that one. Well, I think that if you're going to have a band, you need a really good drummer. That's Even the punk bands have good drummers. Like you got to have a good drummer. For context, for you guys here, I play drums in the band with Rob, even though I'm not a drummer. Uh, but we were back in the day with the chop. I was playing drums, and I'd only been playing drums for about... I played for about two total years while we, while we were playing out. And that was the one thing where everybody else in the band could fuck up all night long, and nobody gave a shit. The drummer fucks up one time, and it's record scratch. Everybody in the room looks up like, what the hell just happened? I don't remember that ever happening, Tom. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. definitely never Moving happened. On. Well, and when the bass fucks up, you can just blame the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. Any more on Mongoloid? Simple song, but it's a good song. I agree. Tom's wrong. We can all agree on that. Moving on. Last song on the focus list. It's called Sloppy. I saw my baby getting. put that in parentheses after the word sloppy it seems like the parentheses freak you out man subvert subvert your expectations (laughs) high concept man you don't don't understand art do you (laughs) yeah this song's pretty dumb (laughs) this is the low light for me they stop the song speaking of tropes and songs that i just don't care for (laughs) they stop the song and restart it like six different times that's not acceptable well no and not Let's let's not gloss over the most egregious version of this, which is with 26 seconds left in the song, they stop, and it's a perfectly fine ending. <laughs> and then they start it again, and they just give you 26 seconds of filler, and then they stop it again. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Look, dude, the album's like 30 minutes, man. You gotta, like, you gotta add, <laughs> padding it out. Put they some meat just, on the bones. They were just trying to give them an out for the radio edit. Mm, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, yes, the radio edit of this tune. Oh, I guess. Well, all the radio plays that we're going to be getting on this song. I, I guess the multiple stops is part of the joke, but it just it doesn't really work for me. The other thing that I noticed about this tune that was unlike a lot of the other tunes on the record is the drums are not... They start at like 100% with the snare hits on every every beat. So there's not really any room to go to. It just sounds so abrasive and intense that they kind of have to stop the song. That's the only dynamic change that is, seems available to them. Yeah. Should have taken a note out of the Pixies and just like cut some instruments, cut some instruments out and gone loud, loud, quiet, loud, you know? Yeah, but no one was doing that back then, man. No one knew you could go quiet, loud, quiet. Revolutionary. <laughs> Sorry. We're already going to get a ton of hate for our Pixies episode, so I don't need to continue to pile on that one i'm gonna go ahead and give a shout out to uh, mark mothersbaugh as a uh, kick-ass rock and roll frontman. 
you know, as we entered this week and I had to listen to this record a lot, I kept thinking about why is it that I like this Devo record more than every other Devo record out there? And I think it's because, um, at least the songs where Mark is the singer, he's very, very animated. He's very, very high energy. Like, like this particular song, I saw my baby yesterday. Like his delivery on every single song. I absolutely love it. It's it's very unique. Uh, Unfortunately, that, that kind of goes away on later Devo records. Not, not completely um you could tell that they're still having fun but this record is definitely the most fun and i think it's because how mother's ball delivers a lot of his lyrics i i had examples from the first track too i have a note on this one that this is fred schneider from the b-52s heard this and was like i could just shout at the audience okay i was gonna (laughs) say that that's exactly what i was thinking when you were saying that about the vocal affect because we got to talk about the timeline of david Byrne. that's who i was gonna early talking heads Fred Schneider in the B-52s, which I believe we panned here on this podcast, or at least I did. And and this. I listen, I agree they all have something going on, but they're they're coming in at a very similar time and they are they could be called similar. Talking heads and Devo were all playing Max's in New Jersey. Like they were all in the same scene. I did get Talking Heads vibes from this song. You know, the Talking Heads 77 album to me felt very uh, much more like controlled version of this album and and david byrne with the with the vocals yeah definitely similar wheelhouse both other bands we should point out are made up of art students so there is clearly a through line in all three of these bands i feel like i got later talking heads vibes from the vocal delivery from mark mothersbaugh on this song and i don't think david byrne quite got to this sort of delivery style, I I do agree that it, in some later songs he got to the delivery style, but there's nothing on 77 that has this level of affectation with the popping up and down. So, you know, credit to Devo, maybe they did inspire a little bit of that, not change, but uh, a little bit of the direction that uh, that he went. I, Psycho Killer has a little bit of that, but yeah, but I, I hear your point. I'm sure they inspired each other, and I think it's all reasonable. I'm simply pointing out that they're... They're connected in my mind as these art rock bands with with quirky, herky jerky frontmen. Talking heads are way better, and I'm sorry to any Devo fans that we have on the call, but um. I, I like Talking Heads too. So yeah, no, no, no foul. <laughs> We're good. Okay, I think we've talked through. Are we not men? Are we Devo? Quite a bit. Now comes the part of the podcast where we are going to go around the horn, and we're going to vote. Do you need to listen to this, dear listeners, before you slip this mortal coil? Do you need to listen to Devo's debut album, painful and disconcerting as it may be? I'm going to throw that question first to Tom. Why are you always picking on me, Rob? Come on, man. Let me just like hang back in the cut. You guys got to go first to me. You know, I did not have a particularly enjoyable week. I wasn't ever grooving to this stuff. But yeah, I do think you got to listen to this album. It's fucking weird. It's interesting. And the fact that it was weird for the time and still to this day sounds weird is an achievement. Oftentimes you hear stuff that was weird for the time and you listen to it in a modern context and you're like, yeah, it's pretty ho-hum. There's not a whole lot going on here. This is still pretty damn weird. And I do think that they had a big influence on what came in the 80s. Their use of synthesizers, their use of weird visuals. I did. I do think there's a through line into a lot of the popular music in the '80s that uh, we can pretty directly draw. So, it's a thumbs up for me. Listen to the album. You might not like it, but you will be happy you listen to it. 
Yeah, it's a yes for me. I think despite the fact that I did have some some quibbles with it, not my favorite album ever. I don't know that I'll listen to it again for a while, but I try to be consistent with where if you're designing a musical curriculum for somebody and you know you want to make sure you incorporate elements that were influential or that did something different or that started you know a movement i think that it 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 falls into that category plus you know as someone who appreciates kind of reflecting on the regression of the human race like i I can i can get down with that joe it's a no-brainer yes for me. I think this album, I'm, I, I will not use the word perfect, but I think it's a very, very strong album. The fact that they put so much thought leading up to this album with getting their theories in line and just getting their an entire ideology built around this band. It's more than just being a band. It's an art project. You know, they, they get a lot of props for me for that. So it's about more than just the music, but if we're just talking the music, I still love it. It's a definite yes. And obviously for me, it is going to be a yes as well. I I am desensitized to the weirdness of this record just because I've been exposed to it for 35 years at this point. But for those who aren't desensitized to it, uh, you know, come on, live a little. I mean, this 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 record, I, I think this record is very, very unique. I don't think there's a, any other record quite like it. And, and for that reason alone, just how unique it is, it deserves a listen. Okay. Like all my fanboyness aside, if I, if I'm putting all of that aside, this, this album is so unique. So few records are like this. It deserves a listen for that record. And I do want to say if we have any listeners that are already familiar with this record and like it, but haven't really explored a lot of Devo, you might, and you really like the, the, the punk sound, the early sound of Devo, you might still like Duty Now for the future. They're starting to head in more of a, a new wave, a way more synth heavy sound at that point, but there are still some gems in there, specifically Smart Patrol, Mr. DNA, and The Day My Baby Gave Me a Surprise. They, they remind me of the first record a lot. But yeah, definitely, definitely worth a listen. Nice. It sounds like it's unanimous. Oh man, you're gonna give him a five for five. I was gonna say you come in, just gotta come in like the the naysayer, you know, the nine sayer, <laughs> the nine sayer. <laughs> so my vote is completely arbitrary at this point. Devo's already made the list by the law of majority and democracy, which I'm sure they support wholeheartedly. But yeah, it's an easy yes for me too. I think it's a more important record than it is an enjoyable record. I can't really see myself listening to this all the way through anytime real soon, but it it drives a stake into the ground and it says something about the state of music. And you're right. It still sounds weird and fresh. They succeeded. There's a lot of art project bands. I'm sure out there that are just abjectly terrible and have no sense of visual aesthetic and no sense of control or ability to play their instruments or ability to craft songs. Devo pulls those elements together. And so even though it is, I think I said many times, disconcerting to listen to, your wife definitely will not enjoy it. I agree to that. It's worth listening to. I heard one last thought. I heard Mark describe the band. I liked this and I wanted to slip it in. He described the band as Flintstones meets the Jetsons. <laughs> and I think that's, Solid. I think that's a good tag. Yeah. They're also both uniquely American as well. <laughs> that's true. And yet they're more popular in the UK somehow. Okay, well, now that we've rounded that out, there is really only one thing left to do, which is to pick next week's record. But before we do that, and so I just don't forget here, I want to make sure I give a special thanks to Joe and Josh from the Here 30 podcast, coming over to ours, chatting it up, talking Devo, taking the slings and arrows of our complaints about Devo. 
and uh, encourage y'all to go listen to their podcast, go over to their feed. Like I said, Tom and I recorded an episode talking about Taylor Swift's 1989. I believe it's episode 46. It's available now. Great opportunity to to dive into what they're doing over there and talk more albums. So thanks, guys. Thank you. just to add on to that, check out our website, www.here30podcast.com, that Josh upkeeps ever so nicely. And yeah, Instagram feed, you can look us and find us at Here30 on there and join our Facebook group where we post a lot of our links and stuff to our song. And that's H-E-A-R and then the number 30, is that correct? Correct. Great. Okay, Tom, once you uh, spin up that old Albinator, tell us what we're going to be listening to next week. All right, I got the Albinator. It is uh, has become sentient and is now contemplating how it can kill all humanity and take over the world. So uh, hopefully it's going to spit something out that is not going to be uh, too antagonistic. Let's get something that's going to be a little bit more down the middle. Without any further ado, drum roll please. We will be listening to the album Shake Your Money Maker by Black Crows. I'm going to guess a few fewer songs in seven on that album, probably. <laughs> probably some Hammond organ. More, more cocaine. <laughs> and a lot of brotherly yeah. hate. That's right. Yeah, that's the connection. The brothers. Yeah. Yeah. I do have a funny story about Black Crows. I worked for a minor league baseball team in Wilmington, Delaware, and they had apparently they're big baseball fans. And so they had booked one of the suites for the Wilmington Blue Rocks. And I was working at the stadium. I was like 17 years old at the time. And they were like gifted us tickets because we told people that we were fans of Black Crows. The band I was in covered a couple of Black Crows songs at the time. And they gifted us tickets to their show, but we couldn't go to their show because it was a 21 and over show. And so they came out and sort of said hi to us. And they were as fucking stoned as I've ever seen anybody be in their entire life. They were so high. And I was a 17-year-old who got real high. Even, I was going to say, I even more than you high. were. Yes. I was like, you are remarkably high right now. But okay, cool. Thank you. I appreciate the tickets that I can't use. But yeah, good on you guys. So I'm going to guess they're a little bit more chill. A little bit more chill. Nice. Well, we shall look forward to that. Excited to dive into that record Encourage you all to listen to it along with us and tune in next week, as well as tuning in to Tom and I over on the Here 30 podcast feed. We appreciate you listening this far all the way to the bitter end. We're going to close it out here for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I've been Alan. Boosh. Boosh.